This is the second time that Peter has used in this letter this phrase, born again. For many of us, we've grown up in the South. If we, if we did, we're very familiar with that term. It is a term that even culturally, I remember or I noticed that when they do polls, political polls where they are trying to show you blocks of voters, one of the blocks of voters that they will show is evangelical or born-again Christians, which they put in different block. I don't know what that term means to you, but it is used outside of Peter only one other place, and it was used by Jesus in John chapter 3 when he met a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a guy who pretty much had what the world would say is everything. He had the type of life that many of us would look at and say, that would be a good life. We think he was wealthy. He was certainly well known. He was well thought of. He had a lot of people who honored him and followed him and wanted to hear what He had to say. And all of this was not because he was culturally famous person or that he had done a lot of wrong things. It was actually because he was a very moral person. He was a very good person. He was a very religious person. And his religion and his exercise of his religion had brought him great notoriety among the Jewish people. He was the teacher of Israel, one of the most sought-after religious leaders of his day. And there's a picture in John chapter 3 where this man Nicodemus sets himself apart from many of the other religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of that day, because John 3 shows us he was intrigued by Jesus. And he wasn't intrigued enough by Jesus to yet stake his reputation on him. So he went to Jesus at night when no one would really know about it, under cover of darkness, to ask Jesus some questions. And it was there that Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, all of these things that have given you this notoriety, all of these things that make you seem to be This sought-after individual, as good as you are, as religious as you are, it cannot save you. You will never see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. Here is the man that all of Israel would have chased after and said, if I could just be like him, God would be pleased with me. And God tells Nicodemus, you will never see my kingdom unless you're born again. A term that means born from above. And Jesus makes clear in this conversation with Nicodemus that he means born from the Spirit. As a matter of fact, he tells him, Nicodemus, what is from flesh, what is born from flesh is flesh, but what is born from the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. You must be born from above. Paul picks up this idea. 
He doesn't use the language to be born again, but he picks up the idea in Ephesians 2 when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them, he tells the church that at one time you were dead in your sins. Dead. Dead people can't do anything to make themselves undead. They can't feel, they can't care, they can't live, they can't enjoy. And Paul said, you before Christ, you were dead in your sins. You could not enjoy spiritual life. You could not have spiritual life. You could not create spiritual life. You were dead. But what happened? And Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say, God was rich in mercy, and when you were dead, he made you alive. By grace, you have been saved. The same idea of what it means to be born again. The same idea that Peter heard Jesus talking about and teaching, and he's now teaching in this letter many decades later. So my question to you is why does Peter then say in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience, how does that fit? Because what Peter has been showing us and what Jesus talked about and what Paul talked about is this work of the Spirit that must happen in our souls for them to be made alive and to be sanctified and purified. So how then and why then would Peter say, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth? And I want to say to you pastorally that asking questions of the Bible that way paying attention to words, and then asking difficult questions of the text you are reading is how you grow. It's how you learn. I want to also say to us and remind us this morning that the reason this matters, the reason that we are going to take time to look at words and ask questions of the text is because the goal of a sincere worshiper is not just to worship God, but to know God as He is and have our hearts come alive to Him. It would be like Nicodemus to spend our life worshiping a God of our own creation and thinking well of ourselves because of that. Our goal is to see God in His glory in the face of Jesus and see our hearts come alive to who He is. So in your handout, if you're a note taker, I want to go back and just kind of summarize what Peter has said to us so far in this letter. Starting with this phrase, you must be born again. You must be born again, which is what Jesus said in John 3, 7. So you must be born again. Let's talk about what Peter shows us about being born again. Number one, what is the cause? What is the cause of you and I being born again? And the answer to that question is God. God is the cause. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 that we looked at several weeks ago. 
Peter starts off, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, much like Paul said in Ephesians 2, he has caused us to be born again. The cause of you and I being born from above, new spirit, new life, the cause is God. What does that mean? It means not a single dotting of the smallest I is credited to us when it comes to our salvation. Paul said that in Ephesians 2. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You don't do anything for a gift. Why does that matter? Why does it matter? Why does Peter emphasize it? Why have we been emphasizing it for weeks looking at this letter? Why does it matter that we embrace God as the cause of us being born again? Why does it matter that we proclaim that? And what Scripture says is because God's causing of us to be born again leads us to the praise of His grace, His glorious grace, which means we see His glory in His grace. And that is what we will praise for all of eternity. For all of eternity, you and I will lift our hands and we will praise the God who caused us to be born again. And to embrace this now is to practice what we're going to do forever. There will not be a moment in His presence that we will have a room to boast. Our hands will be lifted to Him. And we will praise His name for His gift and His grace of taking our dead souls and making them alive again forever and ever That old hymn, a couple of hundred years old, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. For all of eternity. You must be born again. The cause is God. The means is faith. The means is faith. We learned that. Verse 5. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But in verse 5, we're told that we, who have been caused to be born again by God's power, are being guarded through faith. So right now, if you're a believer, you are being guarded by the power of God. But what is the means that He uses to guard you? It is faith. And I would submit to you that Scripture shows it's not just Faith that he uses to guard us, but faith is the means that he uses to bring us to spiritual life. This is very practical. God causes us to be born again, and he ordains the means by which we are born again, and that is faith. What is the agent? The agent is the word. The agent is the word. What do I mean by agent? Agent, an agent is a person or a thing that takes an active role in producing an effect. So an agent is what produces this desired effect. So God has caused us to be born again. The means is faith, but the agent is the Word of God. His Word is what brings about the desired effect of faith that causes us to be born again. If you have a Bible this morning, would you go to Romans 10? If you do not have a Bible today, let me just say that we would love to gift you with one. 
And we would do that even now. If you wanted to raise your hand, Nick, um, get his attention. He'd bring you a copy of the Scriptures. But if you're not quite that bold, uh, let us know after the service, and we'd be glad to gift you with a copy of God's Word. But I want you to go to Romans 10, and I want you to see what Paul writes beginning in verse 13. An amazing passage worthy of underlying underlining in your Bible if you do those kinds of things, or worthy of you buying a Bible that you're willing to underline in and go ahead and do that. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. If you call on the name of Christ and ask him to save you, he will, period. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's the declaration that Paul makes. But then he asks some questions of the church. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed or had faith? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's walk back through that for a moment. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can hang your hat on that. And trust in that. Ever doubt your faith? Doubt that you are a Christian? Are you calling out to Jesus to be saved? You have a rock-solid promise that you will be. But Paul makes the case, they can't call on someone if they don't have faith in him. Faith is what leads them to call out to Christ. But they can't have faith unless they've heard of him. And they can't hear of him unless someone preaches to them. And don't think about preaching just as what I'm doing, but preaching as in sharing his word. And then no one's going to share the word unless God sends them. And he summarizes all of this by saying, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, I want you to make a note of verse 16 that says they've not all obeyed the gospel. We're going to come back to that. But for now, I just want us to look at the summary. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through the word of God. Faith is the means, the Word of God is the agent. The means comes through the agent. Faith comes through hearing. God has purposed faith to come by hearing the Word. God has purposed faith as the means to save us to come when we hear His Word. And something happens. We hear it because we're reading it. We hear it because someone is preaching it. We hear it because someone is sharing it with us. We hear it because someone gave us a track or someone gave us a copy of Scriptures and we're looking at that. We hear it. We may hear it because someone posted an image of a passage of Scripture on Facebook and we we read it. And in that moment, Faith comes. So go back to 1 Peter and notice how he says this same thing in verse 23. We'll come back to verse 22. He says in verse 23, Since you have been born again, 
through the living and abiding word of God. How have we been born again? Through God's word, the living and abiding word of God. So let's ponder that for a minute. He calls the living and abiding word of God an imperishable seed. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is an imperishable seed that is planted in your heart. It is permanent in nature. It is indestructible. It will not fade. It will not wilt. And to make his point, Peter takes a little bit of an aside and he points out, he contrasts the mortality of humanity with the everlasting nature of God's Word. You, church, have been born again by God's Word. And let me tell you, it is an imperishable seed planted in your heart. It will never fade. It will never die. Humanity, flesh, what you know of, is like grass and all of its glory, all of the glory of humanity, everything humanity can create and come up with, invent and show and do, it's like the flowers of grass. Right now at our house, my wife has done this amazing job of getting all these plants out and it looks really good up there and she's planted rose bushes and all types of flowers and it is beautiful. It looks really, really good up there. And you should come see it now. If you want to, you can take a tour and look at it. Because it won't be there in November, December, January. Because as beautiful as it is right now, it will fade. It will die before the end of this year. I'm sorry, honey. What we can do, what we can create, what we, what we, what can happen in our own power is beautiful. And it can be beautiful for a time, but it'll fade. The grass withers, the flower falls. As a matter of fact, if you go and look in, I think this is Isaiah 40, where this is written originally, Isaiah actually says, when God blows, the grass withers and the flower falls. When God determines what we can create in our humanity will fade away. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So as a side note, but a very important one, understand, young men, understand young women, understand old men and old women, nothing we do, think, create, or say can last. No human legacy will endure forever. None. If you hope for significance, you hope for a good thing. If you hope to make a difference, you hope for a good thing. But here's my counsel. Tie your legacy to God's Word. That is the only way what you do will have permanence and significance. Everything you do in your life, somehow tie it to the Word of God because as we sang this morning, everything else will fade away. Now, what is Peter's main point? His point is, 
Only God's word can create and sustain spiritual life. Just what Paul was saying in Romans. Just as Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, just as Paul said in Ephesus, only God's word can create and sustain spiritual life. So I say to you in this room, church leaders, small group leaders, I say to you in this room who might one day be called to ministry, take note. Only God's Word can create and sustain spiritual life. Do you know how much time we are wasting in Christendom and in the church trying to create life in people by things that we can do in our own power in the church? By what we can do to try to draw people in, to try to make the church look like the world so that it's people are really comfortable coming to the church, yet... It is only God's word taught unashamedly and sang boldly and prayed and ministered to each other that can create spiritual life. Christians take note. You need life in your marriage. You need life in how you respond to your boss. You need life day to day. You need God's word. Only his word can create and sustain life. Do you know what the enemy does that he convinces us we're too busy to put ourselves under God's Word. We're too stressed to read and take time for God's Word, and yet it is only God's Word that can create and sustain life for us. Parents, take note. Do you want your children to have life? It is only God's Word that can give that. Do you lack faith? You need God's Word. Only His Word can create faith. He causes us to be born again. The means is faith. The agent is the word. The helper is the spirit. Peter doesn't directly mention the spirit. And so I kind of indented this just as a representation that it's not specifically in the text, although I think it's inferred because he talks about the living word. But Peter is emphasizing the importance of God's Word, but know that the fullness of the teaching of the New Testament, the fullness of the teaching of the Gospel, is the Spirit of God is active in you and I being born again, active in this spiritual life that is created and sustained. Jesus tells us in John that the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. He will point us to Christ And he will apply God's word to our hearts. In Ephesians 6, which some of you are familiar with the passage, the armor of God, you sang about that as a child or heard about it in VBS or just read that passage, very very well-known passage. Ephesians 6, 17 says, The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So the word that is creating faith in us, life in us, That word is wielded by God's Spirit. The cause is God, the means is faith, the agent is the Word, the helper is the Spirit, and the responsibility, the responsibility is mine. Not mine as in David, don't write my name there, write mine or write your name. The responsibility belongs to you. What do I mean by that? Let's go back to verse 22. Church, in light of all these things, God has caused you to be born again. 
to a living hope. He is guarding you through faith that He has created spiritual life in you. He has done this through His Word, the imperishable seed. So you now, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, do the things that I'm about to tell you, he says. The theme of First Peter, I told you, one of the themes is God's sovereignty over everything. God's sovereignty over everything does not dismiss human responsibility. And human responsibility does not nullify God's sovereignty. Peter teaches God is responsible and you and I, excuse me, Peter teaches God is sovereign and you and I are responsible. God is sovereign and you and I are responsible. And that is why I think he uses this language. You purify your souls by being obedient to the truth. Does that mean that sanctification is our work? No. We just said that. It is God's Word through faith. He creates and sustains life. He sanctifies us. But we have responsibility. We have a responsibility to obey. He is calling us to that obedience. So what does that look like? Let's explore it a little bit in this life truth in your handout. We obey the gospel by agreeing to its demand. And what is its demand? The demand is that we believe and repent. We obey the gospel by agreeing to its demand, and its demand is that we believe and repent. So let me tell you two things. One, I am equating truth where he says in verse 23... Excuse me, in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, I'm equating truth to the Word of God. I'm equating truth to the Word of God that he mentions in verse 23 and also to the gospel or the good news that he mentions in verse 25. I believe that both are in view there. It's all about God's Word. We obey the gospel, we obey God's Word, we obey the truth by agreeing to its demands, which is to believe and repent. Now, let me tell you, I struggled this week whether to have you write down, believe and repent, or just believe. And here's why I struggled with that. I don't want you to think of repentance as a work that saves you. We are saved by faith, belief. The demand of the gospel is belief upon Christ and what he has done on the cross on your behalf. But here is why I put and repent. Because in Scripture, saving belief is always connected to repentance. Repentance is not an optional thing. Saving belief creates repentance always. So we believe, and the type of belief that we have is the type of belief that leads us to repent. And I'm stressing that because here's the reality. Belief means a lot of things to us. Will and I right now are watching this show uh, about, it's a 12 seasons long of these people trying to find Bigfoot. And we started watching it because we went to this Bigfoot museum in North Georgia. And it, it's always funny to me because on this show about Bigfoot, they label people skeptics or believers. And skeptics uh, are those who, maybe there's a Bigfoot. Unbelievers just say absolutely no, and believers say, I think there might be something out there. 
Belief, in the gospel sense, is not, I think something might be out there. Belief is, I trust in Jesus, I give him my life, I repent of my sins, and I follow him. Biblical belief is not agreement with facts. There are people who will live their life believing in God, that Jesus is his son, that he rose from the dead, and they will go to hell because they never submitted their life to those facts. Satan and his demons believe all of the gospel in terms of facts, but they don't believe in repentance or that leads to repentance. So look at another passage, Acts chapter 2. In your Bibles, go to Acts 2. And this sermon that was preached at Pentecost, and who is preaching it? Peter. He stands up at Pentecost. He preaches this powerful sermon to all of these people that had gathered from all of these different countries. And in verse 36 of Acts 2, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's been preaching the gospel, he's been talking about Jesus, and he said, I want you to know Jesus is the Christ, the one you crucified. Now look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, this being the gospel and the truth that Peter was teaching. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I believe that means they had faith. They heard the gospel, and in that moment, they were cut to the heart. Something happened. They were transformed. They believed. They had faith. And immediately, they cry out to Peter. They said to him and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what do we do? Like, What do we do next? I don't know what your conversion looked like. I've had the opportunity to walk through conversion where someone is saved, and I have admired in these individuals' lives this idea of, what, what now? What next? Like, tell me. Like, what do I need to do? What's next? What happens? And there's this excitement, this anticipation. Where is that coming from? faith. They were cut to the heart. What is Peter's response? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They ask, what do we do now that we've believed what you've said? And he tells them, this belief leads you here. Repent. And be baptized. And baptism there is a public proclamation of your repentance. They're tied together. Repent and be baptized. And do baptism to show that you're repenting of your sins. Now, do you remember in Romans 10, I said, take note of this verse, not all have obeyed the gospel. Paul is giving this, here's anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call if... They don't have faith, but how are they going to have faith if they don't hear? How are they going to hear if we don't preach? How are they going to, someone going to preach if we don't send them? And then he says, but not all have obeyed the gospel. And he's probably thinking of his fellow Jews. But what did he mean by that? He meant they've not all believed. That's what Isaiah said. I'm preaching these things. Nothing's happening. 
No one's believing. And Paul said that means like no one's obeying the gospel. To not obey the gospel means that you don't believe. So the point I'm trying to make to us is the gospel demands a response. It demands that you respond. When Peter talks about you being obedient to the truth, and thus you've purified your souls, he's not talking about a works-based salvation or a works-based sanctification. He's talking about you believing and repenting. Believing the gospel and repenting of your sins. To obey the gospel is to believe God's word. Believe his promises. Believe his commands. Believe his warnings. And repent. When you see your life isn't lining up with those promises, those commands, those warnings, you repent. You turn. You try and walk like Christ. And in a sense, this happens to you once, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth when you come to know Jesus. But in another sense, this is the pattern of your life as a Christian. You will constantly be believing and repenting, believing and repenting, believing and repenting. You will constantly be seeing new promises, new commands, new warnings, and you will constantly be trying to line your life up with those. Let me say something else about this obedience. This obedience is an exercise of your will. This obedience is an exercise of your will. You don't have to turn there. You can make a note of it. But in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing to the church, and he talks about salvation and our life in Christ being like a race. Some of you may remember this. He says, this is, we're all running a race. And all the, all the, all the participants are running, but not everyone's going to get a prize. You got to run your race the right way, he says, to, to ensure the prize. He says, run then that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So if you're an athlete, you have to practice self-control. You've got to work out. You've got to go to practice. Got to get good at it. But athletes do that, he said, for a perishable wreath. We're running our spiritual race for an imperishable wreath. And then he ends it by saying this. I discipline my body and keep it under control so that after preaching to others, I won't find myself disqualified. Paul says, I have to be really careful. Because I could preach this to you and preach this to you and say this to you and teach this to you and get to the end of my race and find out I wasn't actually following God. So what do I do? I discipline myself. I keep my body under control. To obey means you have to exercise your will. We're not robots. You must engage your faculties, your mind, your will, your emotions, your body, and bring them under obedience. If you know, if I do this, I sin, don't do that. If I go there, I'm tempted. Don't go there. Do the things you need to bring your body your faculties under obedience. 
Do the right things and keep yourself from the wrong things because obedience is an exercise of the will. But obedience is only possible because of your reliance on Jesus. These are the two things you must know about our obedience to the gospel. It is an exercise of your will, but it's only possible because you rely on Jesus. Later on in that same letter to the Corinthians, Paul was talking about He was comparing himself to some other people that had come in after he had left Corinth. And they were teaching a gospel, teaching the gospel, but they were not big fans of Paul. And they were saying bad things about him and degrading his ministry. And Paul says a couple of funny things. And one of them is, I'll tell you one thing, I worked harder than any of them. All those guys that came to you and they're teaching, I worked when I was among you far harder than they're working. I was laying a foundation. I was building something. But in the middle of that, he stops and he says, but it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace is not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. You and I don't obey the gospel the way we obey a human law, and speed limit or something like that. We obey the gospel. We exert our will relying on God's grace. We exert our will and bring our bodies under control, trusting in God. So when we start talking about living out holiness, in your notes, living out holiness, which is what Peter's been talking about so much in the first part of this letter, when we start talking about this, Number one, to live out holiness is to hope in grace. Hope in grace. Josh talked about this a few weeks ago. Set your hope fully on grace. The grace that was yours, that is yours, and that will be fully yours when you see Jesus. What does that mean? It means the requirement of practical obedience doesn't nullify God's grace. It demonstrates God's grace. The fact that you can exert your will and obey the promises, the commands, and the warnings of Scripture shows that God's grace is in you. And without God's grace, you could not bring yourself under obedience to His Word. His grace saves us from what's bad, and it produces in us what is good. You and I exercise with our will what God is doing in us. That is what empowers us to be disciplined people. What empowers us is the hope of grace that God has promised to bring sanctification to completion. Is this going to work? If I discipline myself, if I get up early to read the Word and lose sleep over it, if I go and join a fellowship of believers and I worship with them week after week, if I look for a place to serve, if I pray, if I stay away from temptation, if I flee it, is this is this going to work out? Yes. Why? Because you can be assured of your, the exercising of your will will bring about the completion of holiness? No, because God has promised He will bring it about.
the exercising of your will is accomplished through grace. You can hope in what God is going to do. And so you can know that it's worth it and it's effective. You may not feel like it. You may get up early and read His Word and you may walk away from it. And some mornings it may be, I just feel tired and I, I'm not even real sure if anything good happened. You can trust it did. You can trust God is using it. And some mornings it won't be that way. Or maybe stay up late, whatever the case may be. Some days you'll really get it. But in both cases, God is working. So before we move on, you must be born again. The cause is God, the means is faith, the agent is the word, the helper is the spirit, the responsibility is ours. We obey the gospel. We purify our souls by our obedience to the truth. But our obedience to the truth is believing and repenting. Believing what Jesus has done. Believing what is in his word. And we obey. And yes, we need to exercise our will. But we do so knowing that we're empowered by the grace of God. That is the start of holy living. We hope in grace. Now what is some of the evidence of holiness that we've looked at? What is some of the evidence of hoping in grace? It is that we will seek hard after God. We will seek hard after God. When we're being obedient to the truth, when we're believing and repenting, when we're setting our hope on grace, we will seek hard after God. I'm using that language because I think every one of us in here, we have sought hard after something before. We have went after it. We have had a goal, had a dream, had a desire, had something, and we have, we've went after it. We've worked, we've studied, we've exerted effort, we've sought, we've talked to people, whatever the case is, to go hard after what we wanted. Some of us, we, we, we seek hard after it. We make time for it. We may have to speak at a graduation at 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, but we find a place and a way to fish beforehand because we're seeking hard after it. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't used Josh as an illustration in a while, so I just thought that would be fun. Josh also seeks very hard after God. Very hard after God. Because Josh turned around and called all those fish yesterday and immediately put on Facebook, our house is open, come and feast in exercising a gift of hospitality. We seek hard after God. Verse 8, we're told, love him. Love this Christ you have not seen. Verse 15, we're told, be holy as he is holy. Verse 17, we're told, conduct ourselves with fear. Be introspective. Think of those earthly things that you have sought hard after and compare that to your seeking of God. If we seek harder after earthly things than we do godly things, he's calling us to believe the heavenly things are more worthy and repent where we have sought more after the earthly things. We seek hard after God. Holiness also means we intensely love other believers. 
There were two really main emphases in this section of this letter from Peter. I realize in this, uh, yeah, this section for this morning. I realize we've kind of bounced around, but there were two main sections. One, the emphasis of God's word. Two, the emphasis of loving one another. The love that God's word creates in us. The love for others that is attached to holiness. I just want to ask you a question. When you think of holiness, do you think immediately of loving other people? And if you're like me, the answer to that would be no or not really. I tend to think of holiness in my mind as not sinning. And that's why I've given you the definition before that holiness, the definition of it is to be more and more dedicated to God and more and more separated from that which is common. But here Peter says very clearly, holiness produces love for other believers. So he says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, which we've just said is believing and repenting in the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, that's what this obedience to the gospel, this holiness will create in us. A sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Do you know where else that word earnestly is used? It is used in Luke 22 to describe how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane when he cried tears of blood, earnestly praying to his Father. And Peter takes that same word and applies it to how we're supposed to love each other. Peter actually uses two forms of love there. The first one where he says, that this purification of your souls is creating a sincere brotherly love, it's phileo, brotherly love, friendship type of love. Then immediately he says, love one another, and that love is agape, a deep and intense love. And he says this, do this from a pure heart. In other words, do it without pretense. Don't do it for what you can get back from it. Love one another because you're born again and you're growing in holiness. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he gets back on track with this idea of love by saying, put away all these things that are unloving. Put away malice, put away deceit, put away hypocrisy, put away envy, put away slander, all of these things that would harm someone else that you're called to love. Put them away. Put away the attitudes and the conduct and the thoughts that would harm others. Agape, Christianity is not individualistic. We live in a country that is. We live in a country that values personal freedom. And I'm thankful for that. But we do not serve a God who has given us a personal religion only. It is personal, me and you, no doubt. But you are called to live in community. You cannot get away from that in the Bible. We should long for fellowship and pursue it. And we should long for others to have fellowship, and we should invite them in. I want to encourage and exhort you in this place to look for the people on the fringe who do not have community and fellowship, and invite them in. Don't be settled to just have community with the people that you know and love and have spent years with. 
Thank God for those relationships. But look for the people in the church He has placed you who do not have that and invite them in to what God has given you inside of that church. This is earnest love for one another. I've been ending my sermons every week with, you may have noticed or maybe not, with some admonitions. And it started off, follow Jesus, be baptized, grow in your faith. I intend to start ending my sermons with follow Jesus, grow in your faith, go hard after God, and love each other deeply. Because that, Peter says, is part of holiness. And finally, needfully desire to hear God speak. Part of holiness. Needfully desire to hear God speak. In other words, desire it knowing you need it. Verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. I believe pure spiritual milk there, he's talking about God's word. If you're a parent in this room, you know what happens when your baby is not fed, when your baby expects to be fed. There is whimpering, crying, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, right? Peter says, long for God's word the way an infant longs for milk. Compare what it looks like when a baby doesn't get his nourishment or her nourishment of milk. Compare what that looks like to when you don't receive God's word on a routine or timely basis and ask whether or not they even remotely look the same. The reality is some of us, and I would put myself in this place, could find ourselves going days without reading God's Word and maybe not think anything about it. And he says, long for God to speak to you the way a baby longs for milk. Why? Because you should instinctively desire to be nourished and fed. Every one of us in this room, we get hungry. Some of us, we get what we call hangry. We are called, in a spiritual sense, to hunger after God, His Word, and Him speaking. His Word saves us. His Word sustains us. It grows us in holiness. It increases our love for Him and for one another. One more thing I want to say to us. I just want to point out how the enemy works. Based on everything that we've seen, when our love for God is low, when our love for each other is low, when we're just not feeling it, what do we need more than anything? God's Word preached to us, spoken to us, ministered to us. What do we normally do? We stay home. We separate. I'm just not feeling it today. I just don't want to be around people today. I just, I'm tired today. I'm stressed today. I just, today's not the day. No, that's actually the exact day. Because when you're low on love for God and you're low on love for others, you need the ministry of God's Word. 
whether it is preaching in corporate worship or whether it is small group teaching or whether it is just exhortation among one another or sitting down with His Word. The enemy is so good at convincing us that we need everything but time with God when it is the most needful thing we have. And he wraps it up saying, if indeed, if indeed you have been you have tasted that the Lord is good. Love each other deeply. Long for what will help you grow. If indeed you have tasted God is good. Peter's expectation there is that if you have been in God's word, you've tasted his goodness. Because to flee to his word is to flee to Christ. Because the word, Jesus was the word that became flesh. Experience is, experience with God is sometimes in Christendom almost thought of as the opposite of good theology. Good theology is opposed to experience and experience is opposed to good theology. And I say good theology is meant to lead us to experience with God. To drink the milk of God's word is to experience fellowship with Christ and with others and to experience it over and over again, to run to Christ over and over again. And when you get a taste of it, that's what taste means, to know by experience. When you get a taste of Jesus and being with him, you want more of it. When you get a taste of him working through you and you experience that, you want more of it. So if you and I will hope in grace, seek hard after God, intensely love other believers, needfully desire to hear His Word, we will harvest. We will reap a harvest. And I'm going to let you... This is one of those kind of choose-your-own-adventure endings. I'm going to let you put in that blank what you want to. You could put righteousness. You will harvest righteousness. You might be more specific. You will harvest love. Love for God and others. You might put maturity... You will harvest maturity. You might put experiences with God. You will harvest experiences with God. If you're OCD, you might put everything I just said. They all fit. Sam, you guys can come up. This morning, those of you that are Participating in the baptism, you guys can go in the back and begin to get ready. In just a minute, we're going to have a baptism and see this beautiful, visible picture of salvation proclaimed for what Christ has done. This morning, I want to encourage you, follow Jesus. It's the most common call. Jesus would make. Look at people and say, follow me. Follow after Jesus. If you're cut to the heart, what do you do? Repent. Be baptized if you haven't as a visible sign of repentance. And then grow in your faith. Go hard after God. Yes, go after the things that God has given you to love. Go after the joys in your heart. Go after His gifts, but always primarily go hard after God. Love Him. Fear Him. Grow in that faith. 
and love each other deeply. This morning, as we respond in singing, it's a proper way to respond to God's Word, worship through singing. Or maybe you want to come and pray or pray where you are. Or maybe God places someone in this church on your heart. You want to go pray with them. Love one another earnestly, deeply. Look for those on the fringe. Look for the outcast. Be bold. Introduce yourself. Invite them into relationship. If you've never come to know Christ in this room, or if you're watching this on replay, before you leave, would you talk to someone? You can come see me, or you can get in contact with us on the website. We would love to have a conversation with you about next steps, what God is doing in your life. Or if you just know God's calling you back to a more sincere love, to believe and repent and see holiness grow and love one another deeply, to put yourself more and more under His Word, would you pray this morning for His help? That whatever He's asking you to do, He would give you the help to do it. If you are willing and able to stand to worship, please do so. Or assume a posture of worship that best fits the moment. Father, thank you for your word, your gospel, your truth. I don't proclaim to have taught it with perfection, but I ask this morning that you would make your word alive in our hearts. You would cause us to be born again. You would give us faith that you would let your word be planted in our heart, imperishable seed that would harvest, create a great harvest. Help us to believe and repent. Help us to love one another deeply as you have called us to. Help us worship you now in spirit and truth. Amen.